You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Vanessa Riley on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called Island Queen. And what a fun read. What what a uh, if you love historical fiction and love. Um, you know, books that can transport you to another place and time and and let you feel like that you take a, a vacation in your mind for a while. This is one of those books. It's a must have for your summer reading. It, you know, if you've got a favorite comfy reading chair, this needs to be on that on that little coffee table right beside you where you can grab it and just fall in love with the story. Um, Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you. And you're making me blush, Hank. So thank oh, you're you very much. So, well, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. Um, Vanessa, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Um, it was in grade school and there was a competition to write an essay. Uh, and I wrote about my mother. Um, she was she was my hero. Um, and I just, uh, it ended up winning a couple of awards. Um, so I was like, woo, not only does it mom approved, but it's <laughs> <laughs> other people like it too. That's amazing. Do you, you said you were in grade school. Do you remember like uh, about how old you would have been? Oh, probably would have been maybe eighth grade. Okay. So, okay. So that translates to me. You. You say that uh, not only was this, you know, mom approved, but it it won awards as well. Was was your mom a, a big encourager um, of you? My mom was amazing, and she's literally I call her my first editor. She was a harsh editor. She was she the red <laughs> pen and the circling and and everything. Uh, she she was she was she was harsh, uh, but she um, she she demanded excellence, and I think. That is one of those things that um, has instilled for me to always try and push for to tell the best story possible. That's great. Um, as someone who knew from an early age that you wanted to tell stories and that that you obviously obviously had some proficiency for it, um, you took the the road that most people do to becoming a writer and got a doctorate in mechanical engineering and. <laughs> <laughs> and a master's in industrial engineering. What what led you? You know, well, first off, what 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 brought you to the love of maths and sciences? Well, the actual love of math and science. Um, I I loved uh, mathematics in a school. I was on the science team. Uh, we would go on competitions across the state of South Carolina um, and get into those almost like a buzzer challenges where it's like. Botany for 101. <laughs> Name that plant family and species and things like that. Um, That's hilarious. But by my the way. mother, once again, going back to my mother, my mother was a very practical woman. 
And she said, Vanessa, you always have to be able to pay your bills. Because during that time, looking at trying to be a full-time writer for a, a woman of color, a, a black woman, it, it wasn't, it didn't look like a, a real career option. There, there were unicorns at the time, uh, like a Beverly Jenkins or a Brenda Jackson, but it wasn't like a ubiquitous field for, for women of color. Even for women, it wasn't that very ubiquitous. So I went with math. Math for 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 two hundred, Hank. <laughs> um, you know I love rockets and and whatnot, and so I uh, looking at uh, fluid flows was my undergrad and my specialty in uh, my first master's in, in mechanical engineering at Penn State University, um, and then I went to Stanford and was materials and design uh, was my emphasis there and got a doctorate in mechanical engineering and a mass second master's in engineering management uh and and industrial engineering so i i did spend some time with you know with general motors and and things like that and building dyes and and looking at rapid prototyping to get those cars to you faster cheaper better uh (laughs) but the love of writing you know always wins out eventually Speaking of Beverly Jenkins, she's been on the show before. Gosh, I love her so much. What a what a fantastic woman and writer and just human being. She's amazing. She She, is. She has given me so, so many good pieces of advice throughout the years. The earliest piece I remember was she told me to slow down and tell your story. Slow down and tell your story. So so Island Queen is over 600 pages. So it's Beverly's fault. (laughs) (laughs) Vanessa what what do you think of uh, the the line that people draw between uh, you know having an analytical life and having a creative life you know the maths and sciences are 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 analytical you know it's if you want to think about the left brain right brain you know divide that's they're definitely left brain activities and People think of writing and, and creating stories as, you know, right brain activities. And do, do you believe in those sorts of divides at all? Or um, do you think that we kind of artificially construct things to to justify us wasting time? Well, the answer is actually both. <laughs> but I do believe in the left brain, right brain. And from engineering, you always are curious. There's a curiosity when you're an engineer. Like, how does this system work? Uh, what can make it better? Uh, why why would you need to do certain, certain steps and certain sequences and things like that? And I take that same level of curiosity into my writing world because I'm trying to transport you back to the 1750s, the 1800s, um, and I want you to feel like you're there. So you've got to understand, or I, at least through my writing, you know, how does this world work? You know, why do they do the things they do? Even the what's like, what kind of clothing are they wearing? Uh, the, the styles change from 1750 to 1760 to 1780 to 1800, 1810. The style of clothing is continually changing. And so I've got to, re- and there's reasons why the styles of clothing, because, you know, technology is getting better. Fabrics are getting better, uh, more availabilities of different things. So, so there's a reason for these various things, but I need to show you that when I'm constructing this world. So the, the, the detailed nature of engineering I've brought into my writing world. So I give you a lot of texture, sense, smells, 
uh, feelings, temperatures, you name it, because I want you to feel like you're right there and you're living this story with Dorothy. Vanessa, um, when you first, so you're you're working uh, in, in manufacturing and, and engineering. Um, what was it that that started tugging at you and and wanted to make you create a story that uh, that eventually would go on to to get published? What was it? Was there dissatisfaction in your day job, or, or was this just another outlet that that you wanted to explore? Or what was it that drew you to? Uh, to start pursuing that first book? Um, it wasn't dissatisfaction. It's, it's always this a continuing hunger. When I, I feel that when you have a, a gift to write and you have stories inside of you, they're going to keep gnawing at you until you put them on paper. Um, and, you know, from my career at uh, in telecommunications, um, there's always this excitement of finding something new, bringing new technology to the forefront. Uh, but just being able to this this thing inside of you to tell this story it to me it was always there and um when i was pregnant with my daughter it ended up being a very difficult pregnancy and so i actually literally had to sit down in a chair (laughs) not move for months and my husband was bringing down boxes and he brought down one of these boxes that had some of my writing journals from high school so i picked up a story i was like i can do that i'm smarter now I can do this better and literally started writing from that point. And it's, it's been nonstop ever since. Wow. Vanessa, looking back on that time uh, from, from the vantage point where you are now and looking back to kind of rediscovering this joy of writing and thinking, Oh, I can do this better. Um, how has your, uh, how has your writing life changed from from now to back then, um, do you, have you have you figured out some 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 tools that you carry with you to to new projects and um, you know what have you learned along the way that that makes you a better uh, writer or makes the the process easier for you? Um, I have learned that you always have to keep working on your craft. Um, you always have to learn. Um, you always have to to do things to pour into your craft. Um, things change, um, even if you're telling an old story, like I am the, the techniques of telling stories, the ways to connect to your audience so that your audience can really feel the emotions of your characters, um, understand their sensibilities. There are always better ways to do that. And so I believe firmly in working on my craft and, and I have worked on my craft. Uh, the other thing is just telling the most authentic story. Oftentimes when you're a new writer, you want to follow the market trends or you just read somebody's book and they did some interesting thing. And you're like, oh, I want to do that, too. And and it may not nec- it may not actually fit the story you're trying to tell. Sure. Uh, so it's, sometimes it's just slowing down and just telling the story as it's coming to you. Um, and working on it. And and no first draft is perfect. Please believe me, no first draft is perfect. <laughs> the beauty of revisions is where you really uncover the best story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPins is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran 
who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000 word book, it's about two cards per chapter roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let plot pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off plot pins. Plotpins.com. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website your home on the web where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, Update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Um, talking about um, writing to market and, and you know, uh, a lot of new writers will, will try to follow market trends. And the, the danger in that is that by the time you're finished with it, the market has moved on uh, or it has been oversaturated with the thing that, that you thought the market wanted. Um, but the other side of that is if you completely just write an off the wall story that no one's asking for, um, you run the risk of literally no one asking for it but you know that it just doesn't resonate with anyone um how do you find the sweet spot of of finding something that readers will love but maybe bringing a story out in ways that it hasn't been done before or highlighting 
um, characters that have been underrepresented or um, like, like how do you decide where your niche will be? Um, you know, it is important to understand that not all stories are made for traditional publishing, that they're not necessarily mainstream. Um, and, and that's, an, it's not saying that the, the story is not worthy to be told. It's just, just like you're saying, they're buying trends, patterns and, and things like that. Uh, when I first came out in 2013, uh, the it was very novel to think of having characters of color, particularly black women, in historicals that weren't in, enslaved or servants, uh, not as the the main characters, not as featured, having you know very strong agency within the Regency and Georgian eras, which you know was very widely populated with people of, of color during those timeframes. Um, people forget that, you know, uh, Haitians actually came and helped fought, fight the Revolutionary War. Um, so all history is saturated with this beautiful mixing of peoples from everywhere. But, you know, I start out in historical romance, uh, particularly Regency romance. Characters of color just initially weren't there. And when you know your craft is good, and the only thing that you have to prove is that there's an actual audience. This There's nothing better than to self-publish. And I self-published a number of titles, uh, The Bargain, Unmasked Heart, um, others that are escaping my uh, my mind at this moment. <laughs> Let me turn around here. Um, Unveiling Love, No Hiding for the Guilty. Um, you get to a point, the audience finds you. And so literally the audience was finding me um, the bargain, which was my very first one that, uh, you know, with with the pay, uh, with the with the precious jewel was the main character. Um, she's on the cover. You know, she, you can see that there's there's hope. There's something going on in her eyes that just lets you invite you in to want to know what this woman's story is. Um, like a thousand copies were sold the first week it came out with no advertisement or anything. So wow. There's things to prove to yourself that there is a real hunger for these types of stories. And so eventually, you know, Main Street catches up. Um, uh, Entangled Publishing, uh, one of the editors uh, had read uh, some of my indies and we started a six months dialogue back and forth about what kind of stories they would want me to write, what I should write for them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when that series came out, Advertisements for Love, um, you know, it, it, it I started getting noticed by NPR and in all of these, um, you know, Washington Post. Uh, it was ex it's exciting um, because, you know, eventually the market will catch up. They will see because everybody wants to have their story. Everybody wants to, you know, uh, understand that they have a place in history and to see themselves having happy ever afters. Well, um traditional publishing has this uh, sort of history of, uh, of 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 people having to find their audience and then take them to traditional publishing where uh, in a lot of cases we think of you know you getting a publishing contract and then they help you find your audience um a lot of cases that that's not the way it works it's it's you, you kind of find your audience and then they help you to kind of springboard to a to a larger audience maybe um 
but a, a lot of times that is the case that you kind of gather your tribe and then and then take them to the publishers and in a very backward sort of way it seems like true um yeah. if if you have an idea that that breaks the mold yeah for if you have an idea like they you know because when you you know when you apply or when you you query to be traditionally published or to get an agent you know they're they're looking at market trends they're looking at what are people buying now um and so you have to kind of fit that lens and if you have something that's different or your voice is unique you know it can be a, a hard sell to fit your round peg into their square holes um <laughs> so but you have to believe in what you're doing, right? I mean, there are sometimes you you need to to better your craft, or you need to uh, improve the ways that you're telling the story, or maybe the way you're telling the story isn't quite right for mainstream. You've got to figure out what that is, or is it actually just the story and the story content that's that's the that's the objection? Uh, because or there's this belief that there's not a large enough audience. I'm a firm believer that there there was always a large audience. They just needed to be given books that that appealed to them, that they could see themselves in. And it it's you know, and eventually the world comes around and and now I look like a genius because I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> and it's really just the grace of God that is just opening doors and allowing these stories to be told. What is it about the the Regency time period and the Georgian time period that that you love so much? What what is uh, wh where's the magic in this particular genre or time period that you love so much? Yeah, these time periods uh, fascinate me because there's there's so much change going on, right? These you've got the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, all twirling in in, in the backdrop. So people are demanding their freedom. And then you have a class of people that have been uh, sold from Africa and, and is now being shipped to various parts. And they want their freedom, too. So right. you've got all this wonderful mix here. And then you have those cultures, like particularly in London, where you have free peoples of color uh, interacting in society, you know, living their dreams, making money, doing all these things that everybody wants to do. And at that whole tension of um you know of the the of the of races mixing of 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 finding this cohesion uh, to to move society forward all of that's happening during this time frame and there's and there's so much less stricture when you move on to the victorian age it actually gets more restrictive uh of what people could do and dream and and things to that effect um but you got all this wonderful chaos between uh, the Georgian and, and Regency era that just draws me. There's millions of stories to be told. And you can find everything from the Scots to the Irish. I mean, just everything. It's, it's, it's a beautiful mix. When you start thinking about a new story, Vanessa, um, it, is it a character that comes to you first? Is it a, a, um, a particular historical fact about a, 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 a particular place and, and and time um that then you know becomes a story and then is populated by characters that you imagine um what's that first kernel of the story like for you when 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 the story does not exist in any form or fashion 
and then Vanessa starts ruminating on it and, and the story grows. What, how does that begin for you? It, to me, it always starts with a historical fact or a historical question. So there, there are times I am an archive junkie. So I'm looking through the UK newspaper archives and I find an advertisement in the London Morning Post circa about maybe 1803-ish um, where a woman has placed an advertisement for her husband. She's woman of such and such means looking for a man of, of such and such objections, um, object matrimony. I mean, big bulls day, this woman has put her <laughs> business out there in the streets. She's looking for a husband. And of course, he's got to have this kind of char- characteristics. They'll somebody will answer this this letter. They'll meet at a coffee house. And if it's if it works, they get married. That's phenomenal. Right. right. And it's like 18. Oh, it's like early 1800s. This is before Match.com. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we always think of, you know, when when some people think of history, they think women could do nothing and they had no agency. These are women putting their business out there and right. deciding the that I want to no get agency. married and this is what I want. Right. I, it's, it's, it's empowering. And so it's, that's it's the opposite of no agency. Yeah, this is this is agency despair. <laughs> that's bold okay yeah it is. i wouldn't have done it <laughs> but that is bold look it, it took me long enough to get up the courage to to ask my wife uh you know out at at the water fountain at church you know 30 years ago and then to you know to think about writing a letter and just putting it out there that that would that you know mad props for that exactly so <laughs> You find this fact and then you start thinking about what kind of women would do this? What would be their situations? And the next thing you know, you have a series and and books that are that are founded around that that thing. Uh, For Island Queen, I literally found a a political cartoon circa about 1887, 1888. And it's Prince William Henry, a.k.a. the future William King William the fourth. The, the the king who precedes Victoria, um, he's in a hammock and he's in a hammock with a beautiful black woman. Now, it's a cartoon. And during that time frame, when they're, you know, they are ribbing royalty, uh, they are ribbing the politics of the day. Uh, cartoonists, they could be as vicious as they want. They have never heard of anything being politically correct. This is that time right. frame. Um, and typically when they drew black women, they would make them garish, big lips, big behinds, all these sorts of things. But yeah. this woman is drawn beautifully. So she's not part of the joke. She's part of the tattle. They are saying, right. look what Prince William is doing. Prince William Henry is doing in the West Indies because he's the sailor king. He's commanding frigates. He is in the islands all the time. And I said, I got to know who this woman is, right? So you begin to do this research. It, it took about six years to put all the pieces together. But I find Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, this mulatto woman that he is dancing at the balls in the on the island of Dominica with. Uh, he's showing her off to his friends and everyone's talking about this beautiful woman that the prince is enamored with. Um, and you begin to find this life and the story comes. So it's always, to me, there's always... You find a snippet of history and you begin to ask these questions, the hows and the whys from, once again, from my engineering background. 
uh, and you get a story. Political cartoons are um, a great way to sort of check the temperature of a time period in ways that uh, that um, newspaper articles or kind of straight commentary will never give you. Uh, because like you said, the, you know, the um, political cartoons will tell a truth um, that they're scared to say in plain words. Um, and, and it. And whether that truth is goes against everything that we know and believe now, this is this is what they, this is where they were at the time, and you can get some, uh, you can really get to the heart of a matter by by the kinds of jokes people tell. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, sometimes people forget to look at the art of the time yeah. frames because it tells you what was important. If you're going to take the moment to paint something, there's something important about it. Um, and you can tell from the, the clothing, the, their, their, their status, the things they valued, because often those would be in the paintings as well. There's a whole series of mourning paintings where you can see they're memorializing some a loved one. And once again, these political cartoons, they are all over the gambit. But it tells you what people were concerned about or worried about. Uh, and they really weren't politically correct at all. <laughs> <laughs> at all. So tell me about about Dahl. Um, you 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 know said that that you found um, this this letter that this this posting that this woman uh, put in the newspaper. She's looking for a husband. That got you to thinking. Um, and then the uh, the political cartoons. Uh, how did Dahl come out of all of that? Well, the two different two different series. So the, the advertisements to love series. Um, that's that's from the finding the newspaper clip uh, from gotcha, finding gotcha. These, these advertisements in in the London Morning Post. But Dorothy Kerwin Thomas was literally trying to find who is this woman that is pictured in this relationship with uh, Prince William Henry because um, you don't think of royalty, you know, having you know at, at that particularly that time frame having this loving relationship with a black woman. You just don't see that. Um, uh, and you got to know who this woman is because you can tell just by the way the clothing is drawn, this is not a servant, this is not uh, an, an enslaved individual. Who is this person? Um, and literally, when you follow the man, which is, this is, this is funny, when you follow the rich man, you will find all his friends will tattle on him in their diaries or in their writings of the day. So by following Prince William Henry and his journeys, I was able to find him kicking up his heels on the island of, of Dominica. Um, and this name, Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, uh, Dorothy, Dorothy Kerwin comes up. Um, her descriptions of, of her beauty, um, of how engaging her conversations are. Uh, and then you track this woman's life. I'm, she, at, 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 comes from an enslaved background. So she was enslaved on the island of Maserat. She literally saves money and buys her freedom and the freedom of her, her mother and her children and literally goes on to uh, build businesses across the West Indies. Uh, grand hotels she built, um, stores, uh, all these different things. Employed, she employed series of women's housekeepers and her housekeepers were known as the best of the best. 
because of her travels, because of the the people in her life, she she learned these mannerisms, the European mannerisms of what elegance and finery uh, equated to, and she brought that to her housekeepers and to her hotels. Uh, the sto- some of the stories, and I I had to like, are you real? Like, there's a story of her importing a French chef for uh, one of her hotels. I mean, we're talking about 1810. <laughs> 1810. Wow. She's an amazing woman. Um, her her life, particularly coming from enslavement, was not an easy life. Sure. And she is not a perfect person. There were times I was like, Dorothy, why? Why did you why did you do that? Why you know better? What what are you doing? But she's very human, but she always found a way to rise to the moment. And she's competing on a scale that there are no seats at the table if you are not uh, a, a peer, if you're not from a moneyed class. Uh, she's making her, she's bringing her own chair and forcing seats at tables uh, of colonial power. So it, she's a, she's a story. I cannot believe she was reduced to like a paragraph in in a chapter in in a book. Uh, her life is 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 insane. Um, she literally at that time a black woman's lifespan was about 30 35 years she lived to age 90 wow That's three lifetimes and literally right. when you when you go through this book you will see our life is fascinating and once again during this time frame you're in the middle of wars and rebellions and she is finding a way to protect her family uh, and her and her children and build these businesses in a time where women weren't given the agency to do so. Vanessa, when you're writing about uh, an historical time period and in real places and in real times um, with characters that that sometimes are, are real historical figures, sometimes characters are amalgams of other people and, and kind of combinations. How important is it to you to to be factual with historical facts and where do you allow yourself to um, to be a fiction writer and to to kind of dream of the the what ifs and and what might have been um, as opposed to what is recorded or or maybe even what's not recorded what what things are kind of left to us to fill in the blanks for ourselves because we just don't know. Um, where do you draw the line for yourself as an author and, and how do you navigate those waters? I try and be as accurate as possible. So the very first thing I do is I set up a timeline and this timeline tells me everything that was happening in the world when she lived and every documented fact I can find about Dorothy Kerwin Thomas. So for women, often our, our history is our reproductive history. So I was able to find, you know, birth records of her children. That gave me place and location um, of where Dorothy was at. Uh, Leases, um, her will is actually archived in the UK. Um, So you're able to put together pieces of her life, but you have to fill in the gaps, well, and, and add to the motivations of what she, because Dorothy left no diary, Prince William, uh, uh, Henry or King, all of his papers were burned after he died. 
Wow. So you're missing some very key things, but you can look at contemporary diaries of people that knew them, that that mentioned them. Uh, you can look at um, sometimes looking at other people um, that have been uh, documented in, throughout history, what they survived, what their lives look like. And you can kind of model that to help you fill in motivations and pieces. But I try and be as as accurate as possible because one, these it, I owe it to the people that I'm I'm trying to describe. I, I want to honor their lives and showcase the good and the bad in the most detailed light, so that we can understand what they endured, how they found ways to love, and how they found ways to survive. That, that is my mission to restore this woman to our our, our dialogue. Um, to showcase that even though she wasn't a perfect person and she did some things that were kind of, you know, okay, Dorothy, uh, (laughs) uh, she still found a way to honor her life um, and to bring value to the world. And I think her story needs to be told. Absolutely. And it is told in such vivid uh, imagination and and page turning uh, splendor in in Island Queen. Uh, this is a must have for your summer reading for sure. Go grab it today uh, at your local bookstore. Support your lo- local bookstores uh, if you can. Uh, if not, we're gonna put uh, links in the show notes where you can grab it on Amazon uh, in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. Uh, I have not listened to the audiobook yet. Vanessa, have you heard any? Any uh, of the pre-release yet? Adjua Ando uh, reads the uh, narration of Island Queen, and she is amazing. This is Lady Dansbury for you Bridgerton fans. Uh, She reads it, and she brings the power of performance to the words. I'm humbled and excited about the audiobook so that that's a must-have boys and girls must go out and get the, the audiobook we'll put a link uh, where you can grab it from audible in the show notes as well um vanessa this has been so much fun chatting um we're going to put links like i said to island queen and all your other work in in the show notes of this episode if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do um where can they connect with you online best place to start at my website, VanessaRiley.com. I have a newsletter and I try and keep my readers up to date on all the different things that are happening and the books that are coming out and just the quirkiness of my life. It's all in those pages. <laughs> uh, but my social media is there. I'm uh, Follow me on Instagram. Uh, I'm very, I love Instagram uh, as well as Twitter and Facebook, but uh, everything you need to connect is on my website. So VanessaRiley.com. And we'll send folks to see you there. Vanessa, um, we're going to send everyone to pick up a copy of Island Queen. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you for having me and have me back. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Onsbach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you. By Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. The army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. 
Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51. A one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague, destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons, which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us Claymore mines the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymores' sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there and I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. 
worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales, green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt, or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be, where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no further than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.